Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Namihi nui and welcome. From RNZ National, he is our changing world. It's time for a nice drink of teabag science, which is part of a study looking at the impact of climate change on grassland ecosystems. Actually, Landcare research ecologist Barbara Anderson doesn't even like tea, although she's very fond of the teabag index. Alison catches up with Barbara, her husband and fellow researcher Ralph Orlemuller, and their student Robert McCann to find out more about those teabags. It's basically a litter bag, but instead of making up your own litter bags with different organic matter in them, they just use standardised tea bags. Standard tea bags that so, you would drink as a cup of tea? Yes, they know. They are standard Lipton's tea bags. It's two types of tea. It's the green tea leaves and the red tea leaves. Now, the tricky thing is, is that the tea bags themselves are made of synthetic mesh, so they don't decompose, whereas the tea obviously does decompose. And that means that you can put them in the ground, weigh them before you put them in, put them in the ground, leave them for three months, they decompose. The green tea and the red tea decompose at different rates, and that means that you can use the different rates to get a curve um, to get the part of the vegetable matter or organic matter or tea leaves in this case which has decomposed fast and the part which is going to stay in the ground as carbon. So what's it going to tell us about carbon? What we want to do is we want to quantify how much carbon is in the system and where the system turns from a carbon source into a carbon sink or vice versa. So, we, so whether it's producing carbon or so, whether it's storing carbon. Exactly. And that's why we're using the teabag index and why we're doing all the measurements. Once we can quantify how climate drives, whether a system is a carbon source or a carbon sink, we can then make a model of the effect of climate and climate change, if you want, on these ecosystem properties. The lab in the Netherlands has done all the chemical analysis of the two types of tea. So, we so it's very important that you use those types so of tea bags. It's very important that we use those types of tea bags with that tea in it. And we had quite a lot of trouble um, actually sourcing those tea bags because Lipton's don't sell this type of tea bag in New Zealand. But you did manage to import some. How many tea bags did you need? Uh, so we had 810 tea bags in the field, plus a whole lot of controls. I mean, they're really expensive tea bags as far as tea bags goes, but as far as scientific equipment goes, they're really cheap. Yeah. So and you can then compare your results directly with what anybody else does anywhere else in the world. Exactly. So we can compare the decomposition rate in this ecosystem with the environment that we've got here with anywhere else in the world. And in fact, that's what we're going to do. So once we've done our study, which um, Rob will write up as his master's, and we will write a paper just on our study, but then we'll submit our results to the group in the Netherlands who are collating data from all over the world, and they will then make that into um, part of the carbon cycle part of climate change models. So it's a small part of a much larger project. 
Okay, well, we'll come back to talking about the big picture, but Rob, do you want to talk me through? You've got some things on the bench for me to have a look at. Um, so basically, you can you can see here the green tea material is decomposed far more than it has the red tea material. So, so you've got several tea bags there that have been in the ground. So these are at the bottom of the mountain. So these are buried sort of pairwise next to each other. So this is from 500, which is the lowest elevation that we measured. And if you sort of compare this with the, this is the top of the mountain. Um, so, so what's the altitude range between your bottom of the mountain and the top of the mountain? Um, so it's between 500 and 1900. So we had we had stations at every 100 metres from the bottom. They decomposed a little less at the top. Yeah, yeah. Which is exactly. what you kind of expect, I yeah, suppose, because it's colder. It's colder, exactly. Yeah, and this part is also drier as well. So we're trying to establish the influence of temperature and moisture. Um, and you can see pretty clearly from here that where it's warmer and where it's where it's sort of wetter, it's decomposed more. Okay, and there's a whole box there full of uh, little pottles filled with tea bags. So yeah. those are all the ones you had out in the field and you've pulled back in? No, this is only a tiny part. There's way more. There's, <laughs> there was 810. So, um, so they're up in the freezer in the geography lab. Basically, my role was to help Ralph and Barbara dig out the tea bags after 90 days. So you were the brawn. I was the brawn, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so let's go back and talk a bit more about the big picture. Do you want to tell me where you were actually carrying out the study? Uh, yeah, so we carried out the study in central Otago on the uh, home farm of Barbara. We wanted a really long elevation range, so it's not just the tea bags. We're looking at microclimate and biotic interactions, and we've got an honours student together, Ralph and I, looking at stomatal density changes. We're looking at bacterial and fungal DNA. We're looking at some other ecosystem function stuff, and... Basically, we want to get a whole lot of information about one site along an elevation and an aspect gradient to look at the effects of microclimate. So the overall study is about microclimate, and we're using the aspect and the elevation gradient to get at that. But because we want to do a whole lot of stuff on the same site, then it's really important that we have good access as well as a nice ridge that sort of runs in the right direction so it's got a really shady side and a really sunny side. So the idea is that this is the first part of a of my Rutherford Discovery Fellowship which is sort of funds the, the transport and the field work component of this and then we've kind of leveraged that to leverage little bits of money and help. So the, the geography department gave us two weather stations. So we've got one full research weather station at the top of the mountain and one at the bottom of the mountain and we've had them there for two years recording a whole heap of different things. So wind direction, wind speed, um, relative humidity, temperature, solar radiation, precipitation and alongside that we've got a whole lot of little temperature data loggers which we have some of them above ground and some of them below ground and they're again they're they're quite cheap we set them to record every hour so they just wake up on the hour record what temperature is and then go to sleep and so that's what we've used for Rob's study we've buried them in the ground alongside the tea bags and then we've got a really good direct measure of the ground temperature for that entire three months that the tea bags were in the ground. So which months were the tea bags in the ground? Um, all the summer. And you say that when you were pulling them in the snow had started. Just had started, yeah. yeah just had, like, literally started the first day we were taking them up. Yeah, it was quite difficult because the top was frozen, so we sort of had to chip the tea bags um, out of the soil as it was snowing and windy and that sort of thing, so it was, it was exciting. We enjoyed it. Did you get most of your tea bags back, though? Yeah, we did. We got at least 99% recovery rate on them, so it was actually really good. Some of them have been 
um, eaten by rabbits or whatever, but the vast majority of them were in good condition, so it was good. Someone said, oh, what are you hoping to find? And I kept saying, the tea bags. I really just hope I find the tea bags again. Were they sitting on the surface or were they slightly buried? They were buried 10 centimetres deep. So you're going to get quite a temperature range from, say, a sunny spot to a cool spot from the bottom of the altitude range up to the very top where it'll be much cooler. Yeah, and these measurements are really exciting things and they're quite rare things as well to have these, these days. Even though New Zealand has quite a good network of weather stations, we are really lacking weather and climate information from mountainous regions. So actually having a weather station sitting at 1,900 metres for almost three years now is really quite, quite neat and something we're looking quite forward to looking at the numbers. So over on the computer. That's our elevation transect, and that's the mean temperature um, over the three months from January through April. And so you can see 500s, obviously, there's a really nice relationship that as you go up the mountain, it gets colder. So that's no surprise. Everybody understands that it's colder at the top of the mountain. Um, But what's interesting is that the range from... The sunny side through to the shady side is from 11.5 to 14.5 degrees. So there's a three degree difference. Three degree difference. People say, oh, clearly, if you go up a mountain and you walk on the shady side, it's cooler. If you walk on the sunny side, it's warmer. But actually having numbers that we can now add to this is really quite important. And we can actually say how much warmer the sunny side is or how much cooler the shadier side is. And that really has relevance for all species living on the mountains, really. So there's a lot of research going on at the moment on species in mountainous areas and what happens to these species, to plants and insects under changing climate. And clearly, as it warms, uh, these species will have to move up the mountain to keep track of the climate that they need or like. But lots of mountains, uh, they simply run out of space. So... The mountains are simply not high enough. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so what this sort of research shows um, is that maybe species do actually not have to move up the mountains. Maybe they just have to go around the side for 50 metres to find climate that they, that they need and, and like. So, uh, yeah, it really shows that we need to look at much more fine-scale um, studies, really, if we want to say where climate changes and, and how it changes and how that affects plants and insects and all, all species, really, in mountainous environments. How long are you going to run the study for? Uh, well, we're trying to get as many field seasons out of this as we can, really, because we also lack in long-term data. Plants do things slowly, and they do things really slowly, especially in the alpine area, because they just are slow. And if you put them in a really cold environment, they do things even slower. So we really, this study's not about actually trying to show biological shifts with climate change now. It's more about trying to show what parts of this complicated ecosystem are actually most driven by climate and different aspects of climate and the biotic parts of the system and how it all works together in the hope that if we actually understand that process better, then we have a much better way of or hope of understanding how climate change will affect this ecosystem. And these grassland ecosystems are very important in New Zealand and they're kind of iconic, especially in the South Island. They're what we think of as New Zealand, big tussock golden grasslands. They're important 
ecologically, they're important for conservation, and I think they're also quite quite culturally important. And this is a grazed landscape, so we don't make no pretenses that everything is completely natural, but um, that's part of doing the field work there, is to see you know, how it works with everything else that's there. So what the idea is, is that we will try and understand a lot of what's going on here and at what spatial scales things are working at. So that's why we've got lots of pairs in little clusters, so we can look at the difference in a, in a small scale and then at a sort of medium scale across the aspect and then at a larger scale. But we also want to look regionally. So the idea is to expand it, but staying in tussock grasslands. For the grasslands and alpine regions, they're really important for our... Um water cycle for our groundwater and they're really important for species so a large number of species that we have in New Zealand are really only found in these areas um, so if we lose these areas or these areas lose their function or are not there anymore we lose those species. And that was geographer Ralph Orlemiller from the University of Otago. You also heard from Landcare Research Ecologist and Rutherford Discovery Fellow Barbara Anderson and University of Otago Master Student Robert McCann. That's all for now. For more, check us out on the web. rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. Kakite anō. Subtle results. Still you, but with fewer lines. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulties swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, Headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications including botulinum toxins as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com.